This episode of Access Utah is part of the Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative, administered by the Federation of State Humanities Councils in partnership with the Pulitzer Prizes Board for a collaboration between UPR, Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, and the Salt Lake City Library. The initiative seeks to deepen the public's knowledge and appreciation of the vital connections between democracy, the humanities, journalism, and an informed citizenry. The Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative is supported by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. Welcome to Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams. Gregory Partlow's father was a brilliant and charismatic man, a leading labor organizer who presided over a happy suburban family of four. But when he loses his job following the famous air traffic controller strike of 1981, he succumbs to addiction. Pulitzer Prize-winning poet Gregory Pardlow's new book is called Air Traffic, a memoir of ambition and manhood in America. It follows Pardlow as he builds a life that honors his history without allowing it to define his future. Slowly, he embraces the challenges of being a poet, a son, and a father as he enters recovery for alcoholism and tends to his family. Air traffic is a deeply felt ode to one man's remarkable father, to fatherhood, and to the frustrating yet redemptive ties of family. It's also a scrupulous, searing examination of how manhood can be fashioned in our cultural landscape. Gregory Pardlow's collection, Digest, won the 2015 Pulitzer Prize for Poetry. His other honors include fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation, National Endowment for the Arts, and New York Foundation for the Arts. And Gregory Pardlow joins us for the hour. Thanks for taking the time. Hey, uh, Tom. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Uh, fascinating new new book. You, you call this a memoir in essays. Uh, I guess right. it, it, coming from the world of, uh, of poetry, and there's there's a lot of uh, poetic phrasing uh, here. You have an obvious love for language. Yeah, yeah. Well, I approached the memoir from the direction of poetry, and uh, I wasn't really thinking when I started the project. I wasn't thinking of writing just like the the story of my life. Right. I wanted to enter into. Um, a kind of examination of different topics as told through experience, which is really how I my practice in writing poetry, just uh, you know, just using in prose. And so like, the, the form kind of veered toward um, essay, and we're not really sure what to what to call it. I don't think it's sort of conventional memoir, though. <laughs> And, uh, of course, there's an intersection with a very famous event in, in American history, labor history. We'll right. get into talking about that. Um, I want to talk about uh, just a little bit uh, here, one more thing about language. Your father apparently um, would would have you go to the dictionary for precise yeah. definitions of, of words. Perhaps that <laughs> contributed to your, your success later on. Yeah, of course it did. But I think more than that even was... Um, watching my father speak and, and attending, you know, some of his events and rallies and stuff. And uh, he was a, an electrifying public speaker. And I really ad- admired that, as any kid would, you know, remind, admire his father in, in that situation, that type of situation. And so I, I wanted to emulate that, that kind of charisma and the, uh, the the vocabulary lessons where that was just a a kind of byproduct. Of course, in the time, you know, while I was doing it, I had no idea what it would add up to. But I think, you know, it, um, looking back on it, it certainly laid a, a foundation for my understanding of how language operates and, you know, sort of etymologies and the, the, the logic of, uh, of, of, of building sense, making sense out of words. Your father was a, was a charismatic man, right? And, uh, uh, Considered himself at a certain point a civil rights warrior. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, I think during during those times, uh, he came to view himself as as exceptional, and that that seeped into your family, right? You, your family was encouraged to view themselves as yourselves as exceptional. Yeah, so we were kind of um, we were classically upwardly mobile family, and I. At some point, I guess after the strike, certainly I started to resent that narrative of upward mobility. That it was because I'd, I'd come to assume that it was just so natural. Of, of course, you know we're exceptional. All of my friends' families were exceptional. All of my neighbors, you know, we we lived in uh, you know we lived in the United States or an exceptional nation, and so I just took it for granted that 
you know that the the universe would bend toward our fortunes uh, and you know after the strike it was just really a, a, a wake-up call that um, that there were competing interests in the world and uh, and that we had to negotiate those interests and I, I really felt like I wasn't that the the story of exceptionalism had not prepared me for those challenges and I, I guess I, I got a little resentful of it mm-hmm. it occurs to me that's uh, maybe a narrative of uh, many families in, in today's America I think so. I think absolutely it is. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I teach. Uh, I teach at uh, Rutgers University in Camden, and I see. And I've been teaching university for uh, in college for a while, and I, I see that as one of the things that, um, you know, the, the classic uh, shedding of naivete is one of the the first uh, hurdles for any young person to, you know, enter into um, a meaningful and productive adulthood. Tell me about uh, your, uh, it's a somewhat glamorous job, right? Air traffic controller. Uh, your, what would oh your would your father t- talk talk about when he came home about that? Well, so it's glamorous from the outside, perhaps. Um, and and I, that's not true. I think the controllers themselves really um, felt high, thought highly of the job. Certainly it's, it's worth, it's incredibly uh, important uh, work. Uh, but my father would come home after a day of work and, and basically lock himself in the in his bedroom, and I didn't really see him except for dinner or um, you know sometimes he would come out and, and and grill in the in the yard. But he was was an incredibly stressful job, and so while I uh, and I think a lot of us on the outside, well, no, so I as a kid admired and looked up to all of the men who were doing this 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 stressful important high stakes work in the in the towers making sure you know people move through the skies safely get to their destinations and um, but i think popularly in the popular culture most americans and i certainly learned this at the time had no idea what it meant to be an air traffic controller and, and therefore did not value that job and I think that was one of the things that contributed to the um, uh, the conflicts in the in the strike was the fact that the the controllers felt like they weren't being given their due. That was one of the just sort of fundamental things. Of course, there were lots of very important um, practical concerns, but I think at root was this issue of the of the, the dignity of the work and a recognition for the the importance of the work and, and their value as uh, as workers. So at uh, PATCO, the union went out on uh, well, strike. Your father was uh, a leader, an organizer, right? He uh, was on yeah. television, prominent. Yeah, yeah. He was, uh, well, so when he was in high school, as you mentioned earlier, he was um, a student activist and had been involved in uh, sort of the black student movement. Um, but his father, my grandfather, was a member of the Black Trade Unionists in, in Philadelphia. My great grandfather worked on the the U.S. Uh, USS Wisconsin uh, as a rigger. Uh, so labor was uh, was always been a big part of our my family narrative. And so when the strike came around, or when when the conflicts with the the federal government came around between Patco and, and the FAA. My father very eagerly stepped forward to lead the charge. He felt passionate about uh, about these kind of collective collective um, collective will movements. Let's let's call them. I think you know above and beyond sort of uh, specific race or, or or labor issues. The idea of a community coming together to to work toward a, a shared goal. I think that really excited him. Uh, President Reagan famously broke the union, right? Gave them 48 hours yeah. to come back to work, and then fired what some what 12, 13,000. Yeah, yeah. The um, so they had 40. <laughs> they they well, first of all, when President when well, candidate Craig, uh, Reagan was um, campaigning, he promised to uh, recognize the the union more to um, address their. 
working hours, their concerns over working hours, their concerns over the equipment that they were using, their concerns certainly over salary. And these were campaign promises. And, and you know, one could argue that Petco was probably a little naive in, in believing wholeheartedly the, the campaign promises of any politician. But they were very disgruntled when uh, they were backburnered uh, when uh, Reagan and Reagan advanced to the presidency, and so the strike the strike came about really just as a, a kind of um, uh, I don't want to say a tantrum, but let's let's you know for the sake of uh, of image, let's say it was they give you a sense of the the emotional content of it, a sort of collective tantrum in which they really just wanted attention. And it came down to the strike, and, and it was kind of, you know, these, all of these people, all of these egos were set in motion toward this, um, well, now we know it was an inevitable outcome, and that was to go on strike, and it was uh, practically inevitable that uh, Reagan would respond with this ultimatum to either come back to the work to work or forfeit their jobs. And, you know, so the... The two eventualities came about, and they, um, the ones who did not go back, which was the vast majority, you know, some 11,000 of them, uh, were terminated. Not only were they terminated, but they were also uh, the uh, outlaws, and they were pursued. My father among them was pursued by uh, federal marshals. So, yeah, this was the beginning of what I, and I think a lot of people consider the beginning of the end of organized labor, not just in America, but around the world. And the, the downward trajectory to this day, I think, you know. To this very, yeah. Mm -hmm. well, yeah, and, and to the point where while, while I was writing the book, there were still, um, you know, articles, mentions in the, in the news that here Scott Walker referencing, you know, joyously uh, the, the governor of Wisconsin, joy joyously rec um, referencing Reagan's breaking the, the back of the union. Um, Chris Christie, who was then governor of New Jersey, uh, celebrated Reagan's, you know, smashing the... And, then, you know, there was this, this kind of um, vindictive glee, you know, we're, 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 we're you know, striking back at the at what were ultimately, you know, working men and women, working American men and women, who really just wanted to, wanted to have some dignity, um, and yeah, in my research and thinking through the strike, there were oversteps and missteps and and um, politics involved that muddied everything, but I think the the real real tragedy was just the. Uh, the legacy that we get is a is a kind of um, distaste for for collective bargaining and for for protecting uh, American workers. Yeah, from where from where the labor movement was to today, it, it is a stunning downfall. Oh my gosh! Yeah, no, it's it's yeah, it's amazing. Uh, so your and your your family's bound up in this. Of course, your your uh, grandfather, you say, was a organizer. I wonder what he would think. Well, he was uh, he he died in the late '90s. So, uh, on on both sides, my my father's father and my maternal, my mother's uh, father, um, my mother's father now was he worked actually worked for the FAA, and that's how my dad got involved uh, as a as an air traffic controller. Um, but so my my mother's father, having worked for the FAA, he was. He was quote unquote management at the time during the strike. Uh, my my father's father was very much um, you know on the side of of labor, and so I had you know the the the, the pulling factions of my <laughs> of my soul on the on my father's side were you know these kinds of uh, brass knuckle you know let's 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 take it to the streets kind of. Um, Kind of labor organizers, and my mother's father was uh, very much a, a kind of college boy management style. Although he didn't go to college, but he, he had that 
he had that affect ab- about him. Um, yeah, so it was interesting, very interesting dynamic of you know the the national uh, conflict, the national uh, yeah tensions played out right in my very family, right at right at home, at the heart of our our family. If you just joined us, we're talking with uh, Gregory Pardlow. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning poet, uh, won the Pulitzer Prize for his collection, Digest. And uh, the latest book, a fascinating book, it's called Air Traffic, A Memoir of Ambition and Manhood in America. When we come back, I want to talk uh, a bit more about your uh, relationship with your father. This, this fascinating line from the book, we'll treat this when we come back. You say, so much of the way I interpret the world has come from the way he interpreted it. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll talk about that and much more following this Did you know that researchers are developing apps to help with depression? Studies have found that online programs can help people learn acceptance and commitment therapy, or ACT, which has been proven to help with a variety of mental health issues, including depression and anxiety. People who are unsure about starting therapy can first learn ACT skills using an online program and then progress to therapy sessions. The ACT model teaches skills that can be applied in a variety of ways, such as mindfulness, time management, and handling challenging emotions. This segment of Did You Know That? has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians. Located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah. This episode of Access Utah is part of the Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative administered by the Federation of State Humanities Councils in partnership with the Pulitzer Prizes Board for a collaboration between UPR, Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, and the Salt Lake City Library. The initiative seeks to deepen the public's knowledge and appreciation of the vital connections between democracy, the humanities, journalism, and an informed citizenry. The Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative is supported by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Our guest for the hour is Gregory Pardlow. Uh, his latest book is called Air Traffic, A Memoir of Ambition and Manhood in America. Gregory Pardlow's father was a brilliant and charismatic man, a leading labor organizer. He presided over a happy suburban family, but uh, then he loses his job following the famous air traffic controller strike of 1981. That's where I want to pick this up, uh, Gregory Pardlow. So um, your, your father is uh, fired banned from working for the federal government, uh, I guess for life, that President uh, Clinton uh, rescinded that ban 10 years later or something. But of course, your father and the others couldn't have known that was going to happen. Um, So this is a this is a big blow. And in fact, uh, he he uh, went into hiding, quote unquote, for a little while. The the, the marshals were out after him. Yeah, so well, I would not really hiding. It was he was I, I glamorize it, I romanticize it a little bit by saying you know he was on the lamb, and I guess technically that is the, that is true. But basically, he was at the uh, he spent all of his time. They had a cot, they had several cots at the the union hall, and so he stayed there rather than come home. But the uh, the federal marshals did indeed stake out our house, um, and I remember as a as a, a tween as a 12 year old uh kid watched seeing these black sedans parked on my street at the end of my uh of our street we had lived on a cul-de-sac and they would they sat there for for hours it was uh, mm. yeah it was a little disconcerting yeah imagine. i would imagine so this is uh this is a blow it would be a blow to anyone um uh, how did your father handle this i think he at least part of his identity is is bound up in this, right? The job, it's a, it's a kind of Very a much. glamorous job, and that now he's now he's lost the job. So his his identity was so much bound up in that. Um, you, you, as you understand, it's, you, you, the controllers are uniquely trained, right? It's not like this is a transferable skill. They couldn't just, uh, you know, pick up and, and go somewhere else unless they were willing to go um, I guess I think some of them may have gotten jobs in, in Canada or uh, I think Kuwait was another possible destination at the time. But, um, but yeah, without that, 
without the opportunity to work in a tower in the U.S., all of his training, all of his sense of identity was effectively wiped clean in that in that one uh, in that that little forty eight hour span um, of the strike, and so he struggled to regain his footing and his his sense of of self. Um, you know what was he going to do? He immediately he went out and and just sort of picked up some part time jobs. He worked as a security guard for a while. Um, he tried his hand at entrepreneurism. He uh, did, started doing uh, flea market shopping, and our house was you know o- overrun with secondhand goods. He turned it. Our house was basically a, a, a flea market warehouse for a while, um, and eventually he started working for the the um, trains to, for rail transit, and even that was kind of touch and go. Um, so basically through all of this, the emotional side of it is really what I was, was interested in. We understand the, the sort of practical, technical aspects of, you know, what happens when one loses a job, you know, the, the, the bills come due and the, 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 um, the difficulty that it places the family in, but my father's ego was so damaged by that whole experience, that he was, well, he'd always, he'd long been a pot smoker. And uh, I think, you know, looking back on it, I, I had no idea that it was going on at the time, but I think uh, he had moved on to harder and, uh, uh, and more destructive uh, drugs. And, you know, it just, uh, over over time, these things just, inevitably wear one down and you know he kept the family you know the the family was sort of even keeled even though we were struggling for a while uh but looking back i all of the evidence was there you know so things like um appliances <laughs> sort of going missing and and unexplained uh inexplicable sort of um Losses of chunks of money that we had, had thought were uh, were secure. For example, the my the savings that uh, we had for my college save my for, for uh, my college tuition that is. And so you know, yeah, these the the kind of destruction that losing a job that seminal and you know when one's identity is so dependent on it. That kind of destruction is is really in incalculable. You know, there's no there's no sort of um, no way to, to place a value on it. Hmm. Maybe even more so with your dad because he he viewed himself as exceptional, right? And, well, uh, this he, is a big blow. I think necess- yeah, I think necessarily um, to be an air traffic controller, and we look at the the sort of profile of these men and women who who choose to go, not only who choose to go into that job, to that work, but who are able to stay, you know, it takes a, a really, you know, there's a word again, it takes an exceptional uh, character to be able to, to do that work. And he, my father, was rather full of himself to begin with, and, you know, and the, the importance of the, of the, the job, um, yeah, for when one is brought down from a from a great height, I, I think uh, you know he wasn't in the in the practice of uh, he was not a, a humble man to begin with, and I, I think you know one who is uh, humble ordinarily and practices you know a, a kind of humility throughout life is able to withstand some of the weather, some of the you know the the, um, the problems that life throws at you. But my father was not one of those people. He was he was not prepared for um, for this blow at all. If you just joined us, we're talking with Gregory Partlow, author previously of uh, poetry collections. Collection Digest won the Pulitzer Prize in 2015 for poetry. Latest book is Air Traffic, a memoir of ambition and manhood in America. 
So Gregory Pardlo, I just want to quote a, a couple of lines from the introduction. Um, mm. You you say that you uh, were the result of an unplanned pregnancy. Uh, you go on to say, I was the mistake that he, talking about your father, felt he was nobly taking responsibility for. I was thus made to suffer the flexing of Big Greg's narcissism and all its demonstrative and petty renditions. I don't mention this in a self-pitying way, whereas he wanted from me a show of gratitude, I studied him. <laughs> That's interesting. You go on to say you were, you were the rival in the family mythology, and your brother Robbie was the, the comfort. He was born yeah. 10 years later or something. Yeah, so, uh, you know, my my parents came from what they considered to be, you know, kind of the, the standard, good, you know, solid nuclear families, and my grandparents were, were not prepared uh, to see themselves as being grandparents in their 40s. And so it was kind of, it was quite a scandal when, um, when my, my parents uh, eloped, ran off to, to get married as my mother was some six months pregnant. Um, so we were, there was a, there was a kind of uh, redemptive mission in, in our, you know, sort of built into our family story. And I was very much at the, at the heart of that. And I was, I think my father's plan was for me to you know, sort of faithfully play that role and I wanted, uh, I, by virtue of studying my father, I, I got much of my ambition from him, and I, I wanted increasing uh, in, in, uh, a larger profile in the in the family story. My brother, who was born ten years later, was very much uh, a planned child, and very much uh, to the point where. My mother had actually miscarried, and they were so they they had been trying to to conceive for some years when uh, when Robbie was born, and so Robbie was doted on in a way that you know any second kid in the um, in a family or, or certainly much much younger child in a uh, sibling would be, and he was more of a, a sidekick for my dad while you know I was, uh, um, you know, and I, and I, I hesitate because I don't want it to sound like I, you know, sort of falling into the, this classic unwanted child narrative, and that, that really wasn't the case at all. But because of my father's narcissism, I, I was very much, uh, very often rather, uh, a kind of prop <laughs> in, in, the, in the family story, you know, that... Uh, the, the the straight man that my that my father's lead character kind of played off of, and and I I, I resisted that role um, much to his uh, chagrin, and you know I think that became one of the ways that we or, or that I was able to get my father's attention was by you know by being ambitious and, and by demanding and uh, being more and more outspoken, whereas he wanted me just to, to kind of um, you know, be seen and, and, and not heard. What did, how did your father deal with your later success? You had, you will talk a little bit about, mm. uh, you went along, you went through some troubles, but, uh, you mm -hmm. know, became a successful writer, won the Pulitzer. What, uh, let's, let's talk about that. What, how did he handle that? You winning yeah. the Pulitzer. So, um, I, you know, I'm, that's actually something I'm still figuring out, to be honest. Um, I know he was proud of me, but even in, as we were saying earlier, talking about these, this narrative of exceptionalism, you know, we, we saw ourselves ex as exceptional. And I think from my father, there was a, uh, a sense that whatever successes I achieved were necessarily attributable to him. You know, it is, it is kind of a, the natural order of things, um, and and in that, as I'm saying too, there's uh, he often wanted me to acknowledge his role in in, in my my success, um, and for me not to kind of get uh, get too big for my britches, so to speak. And so when I um, when I won the I won the 
Pulitzer in, in April of 2015, and he was already he had already he, my my mother had already divorced. They divorced around, um, or they at least had separated around 2010, and. He was living in Vegas, so I, our communication was mostly through text messages at the time. And I hadn't heard from him about the, the Pulitzer, which, you know, as, as one would expect, that's a, a pretty big deal. Everybody in my family, you know, was, we had been celebrating uh, for a few days, and I texted my dad to say, well, hey, didn't you, didn't you hear and he texts back to me, um, and I'm paraphrasing, I don't remember the, the, the quote, I, I managed to quote it in the book, obviously, because it's on a text, but he says, uh, when uh, one of Caesar's generals conquered a town, Caesar would send a slave to ride alongside him and were to remind him that he's only human. And that's the entirety of the text. Right. No <laughs> congratulations, though. And by the way, here's this little anecdote. You know, my classic, uh, um, my father was uh, enigmatic and, you know, he would just say these things and, and assume, expect me to connect the dots. And the, the dots, of course, were that, uh, yeah, the subtext is, yeah, good job, but <laughs> don't get, don't get ahead of yourself, uh, you know that the don't let your your uh, sort of ego take over. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's that that encapsulates a lot there. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I want you to maybe to talk about this. You 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 say, Quinn, you so much of the way I interpret the world has come from the way he interpreted the world. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is classically, you know. So we um, we say. Every now and then I hear, certainly as a, as a parent, as a father now, you know, I, I have my values that I've worked very scrupulously to develop, uh, you know, to have, keep them in line with my politics and, and the way I want, the, the kind of world I want my, my, not only the world I want my kids to grow into, but the kind of world I, I want them to kind of project and, and uh, you know, the values I want them to carry. And every now and then I, I hear myself, I catch myself, um, either saying something or, or doing something that is just patently offensive to <laughs> everything everything I've worked toward, and I and I realize, of course, it's it's coming from my father. My father's um, attitudes and he, not only you know humor and and his um, way of just thinking about life is so deeply ingrained that it's hard to differentiate between, or, or it's, it's hard to separate, rather. Um, at some point, I start to wonder if I am, or, or let me put it this way, I, I want to figure out how much of what I want in the world and in life is um, of my own volition, right, is, is something that I have worked to, to create and to determine on my own. It's never going to be exclusive of, of my parents, certainly, but I, I want to have a sense of uh, how much I am standing on my own um, intellectual and ideological feet. But it, I, I realize that it's, it's impossible because, uh, you know, every, every step down, every next level of examination, I find my father, you know, there, there's, there's nowhere, there is no part of me that is not <laughs> already shaded by my father's value systems. And so there's, there's, it's a, it's a futile exercise. Um, and I frankly wonder sometimes why I'm compelled to, to, to do it. Um, and it has to do with, I guess, this idea of, of being, you know, an individual in the world and this kind of American individualism and, you know, a bootstrap kind of value system. But we're all connected. We're all interdependent. Ultimately, no one is an island. And so it's, uh, it's I don't know, it's just an interesting exercise, I think. 
And, and especially in with regard to family and and, and father to son, right? That's all the more. De, de, all, all the more. more. Uh, you uh, manhood is in the in the title. You you uh, you think about you think extensively about masculinity, manhood, what you inherited from your father, what you have consciously tried to change in right. in yourself, and and you have you have two daughters, right? I have two daughters, so um, you know it's uh, in our political climate i i think there is uh people are men are rightfully uh sort of ridiculed for making statements like you know well i i didn't understand um i wasn't sensitive to the the humanity of women until i had daughters you know it's a it's a it's an absurd statement um (laughs) and that is why I am uh, deeply concerned and have been deeply concerned by the kind of culture shock that I experienced in having girls, having daughters. Um, you know, I, I went to college, I went to graduate school, I consider myself uh, an enlightened uh, person, I've traveled. And and yet, you know, just as I was saying before about how deeply ingrained my father specifically is, I I, I find it's it's frustrating. Um, it's more than frustrating how much being an American man entails just a a basic toxic level of, you know, level of, of, of toxicity, a level of, of misogyny. I mean, there is this built into our very definition, um, these, these kind of, these not just paternal attitudes, there is no such thing as a, a benign and, and you know, um, uh, neutral masculinity. And so I, as I said, the, the culture shock to me made me embarrassed and ashamed uh and and you know very much present to uh how much of that i was unaware and and frankly um just not had not been motivated to even examine and so part of what i want to do with this this book is to examine my own masculinity without pointing a finger at anyone but i think the implication is clear that you know my problem uh as a as an american male is not unique i think uh i think we there are many of us who you know could use some uh self-examination some some self-interrogation you just joined us. We're talking with Gregory Pardlow. He's a Pulitzer Prize winner for his uh, collection of poetry, uh, Digest, won the Pulitzer in uh, 2015. Latest book is Air Traffic, a memoir of ambition and manhood in America. Uh, when we come back, I want to talk about uh, alcoholism in your family. You write about this. Um, mm-hmm. And you, you write, alcoholism was the music of our mm-hmm. familiar familial dysfunction. And uh, talk about um, intervention for your brother, Robbie, which didn't happen in the privacy of your own home. It happened <laughs> happened on a television show, uh, which is remarkable. I want to talk about that and uh, other things as well in our last segment with uh, Gregory Pardlow. More following this. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Cash Valley ENT and the Allergy Clinic with providers Drs. Wood, Benyon, and Blotter and PA Jamie Grange, practicing ear, nose, and throat medicine, allergy services, and facial, plastic, and reconstructive surgery. 753-7880. Hi, I'm Steve Williams, host of Jazz Time on Utah Public Radio. If you enjoy tuning into my program Sunday nights, then come join me at UPR's upcoming events, Blues, Brews, and Barbecue on July 29th. We'll listen to music from Nora Barlow and the Sammy Hickson Blues Band with Jim Schaub and Doug Jones. Come enjoy the evening with me and the rest of the UPR crew. And at the end of the night, get dropped off anywhere in Cache Valley from a complimentary ride service. Head to upr.org for more details and to get your tickets. 
programming on Utah Public Radio was made possible in part by our members and the USU Summer Piano Festival presenting pianist Jason Hardink performing Liszt's Transcendental Etudes, Tuesday, July 17th at 7.30 p.m. in the Russell Wanless Performance Hall. Tickets not required. Details at music.usu.edu slash frystreetcmf. This episode of Access Utah is part of the Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative administered by the Federation of State Humanities Councils in partnership with the Pulitzer Prizes Board for a collaboration between UPR, Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, and the Salt Lake City Library. The initiative seeks to deepen the public's knowledge and appreciation of the vital connections between democracy, the humanities, journalism, and an informed citizenry. The Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative is supported by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. My guest for the hour is Gregory Pardlow. He uh, is author most recently of Air Traffic, a memoir of ambition and manhood in America. We have about 10 minutes left in the conversation. So, uh, Gregory Pardlow, before the uh, break, I uh, quoted you, alcoholism was the muzak of our familial dysfunction. Um, Another fascinating quote, uh, because it is eternal, alcoholism is the closest thing I have to religion. Uh, so you're an alcoholic. Your brother, um, I think, goes back a generation is, uh, or two as well. Grandparents. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Uh, so your uh, your your mother is concerned about your brother Robbie. Robbie has become a musician, uh, f- fairly successful, right? Uh, had some. Yeah. So he was in a Grammy-nominated uh, R&B group called City High. They had a a, a hit uh, called "What Would You Do" in the early 2000s. And, you know, he was very young, and he goes into the, uh, he, he studied at the uh, conservatory in, um, uh, in Philadelphia. He'd taken, gone to um, the, the school in Boston. He'd studied with um, some very famous musicians, in, in fact. And uh, so my mother was a, a kind of classic stage mom and pushed him, and, and he went into this industry very unprepared because he's kind of classically trained, and, you know, the, the rock and roll business, um, I, I think he, he just wasn't, um, wasn't prepared for the, the kinds of excesses and the, the kinds of license that that um, community afforded him, and ha- never having left home, and he was still a kid when he, when he started, a kid, 18, 19. Um, he just wasn't prepared and, and very uh, quickly got swallowed up by, um, you know, alcohol and, and drugs and, you know, many, many late nights. So that, his music career suffered to the point where um, eventually no one wanted to work with him anymore. The group fell apart. And um, that's when my mother, not that's when, but several years later, eventually my mother reached out to the producers of uh, A&E's show Intervention. And um, they were happy to, to have my family on. And so we, we pursued uh, an intervention with him through the, through the, the Grammy-nominated uh, cable television show. <laughs> this was <laughs> um, so uh, Emmy-nominated, but but you know it's reality TV. I mean, it's maybe you know a little higher class than some of them, but uh, the you know the outcome is pretty pretty heightened, right? Um, yeah. You you went into this with an alcohol problem yourself, which I I guess in the, you're, you're not admitting to, and you're trying to hide time, throughout this. Right, right. At the time, um, I had been, uh, I, I, it sounds ridiculous to say, but I, I guess I would uh, consider myself to have been a functioning, uh, high-functioning alcoholic because I, I, I was uh, a university professor and, you know, I, I had published uh, one award-winning book by then um, and held... Uh, it was in a profoundly deep sense of denial, as you know, as any function, anyone who considers themselves a functioning alcoholic would necessarily, you know, would have to be. And so it was, um, you know, some not only irony, but but um, 
the hypocrisy, the weight of the hypocrisy of, of me participating in an intervention uh, for my brother while I was uh, active, uh, actively drinking uh, alcoholic was, uh, was a lot for me to, to, to process. And it ultimately uh, destabilized, you know, shook me to the, to the point where I had to, to make some admissions to myself. And that was my first steps toward sobriety. So ironic, right? You're the one who uh, it, the show, I guess, affected. Uh, not yeah, necessarily I Robbie. was supposed to be one of the one of the heroes, you know, coming to the rescue. Um, and I think my my brother certainly benefited an awful lot from the the process. Um, but I'm I'm not sure he's entirely. I, I, we know this is one of the things that we don't talk about, right? Um, I'm not sure he's entirely committed to 100% sobriety at this point in his life. But the, I guess the one of the upsides is that I am now some, uh, more than seven years so, sober myself. So um, the a good irony, I would say. Mm-hmm. You write, there can be no happily ever after for a recovering drunk like me. So that's mm-hmm. eternal vigilance. Is that what you're talking about? Absolutely, yeah. And I'm also thinking about, you know, we started off talking about the stories of exceptionalism that we, that families, my family, for example, um, that we told ourselves. And I'm reacting against, or I'm, I'm wary of the story that says, uh, you know, I was, um, I was an alcoholic, a practicing alcoholic, and, um, and I hit rock bottom, I had a, a, a transformative experience, and look, now I'm clean and sober, and all is good. It's all happy. That mm. is absolutely not the case. That is, <laughs> that is will, will never be the case. And um, so it's more than just a kind of eternal vigilance. It is, it is just a, a fact of life, right? It's not, I don't think I have to be ever vigilant. I just I have to be aware of of who I am, and that is someone with a, a very destructive allergy, <laughs> coupled with uh, um, a, a potentially destructive self esteem issue. And so, you know, when the when the two meet, you know, it can be it can have mortal consequences. And that's just that's my disease. So um, it doesn't go away, and, and I. I didn't want to write a book that suggested that, you know, everything was sort of resolved and that there ever could be such a thing as a, as a happily ever after. So have three or four minutes left. Um, I'll just treat, uh, you know, big issue, race. Uh, you say yeah. uh, in, in these essays, I'm not practicing black, you say. But you mm-hmm. go on to say uh, elsewhere, I don't want to be considered American to the exclusion of my African Americanness. I don't want to be mm-hmm. considered post-black or ex-colored. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is um, uh, I consider race in America to I think it functions very much like uh, religion, and that is there are people who believe deeply that that there is something to this business of, of race. Um, I don't believe there's anything to it. I, I do believe that because so many people are invested in race, that it has you know, real-world consequences. It's, it is built into our policies, our legislation, um, our, you know, our institutions, and so it affects people's lives in very real ways. But it's nonetheless a belief system. And so what I'm trying to, to get at, and I think the, the danger, the risk in saying I am not a practicing black, quote-unquote, and I'm aware of how provocative that sounds, is that people will hear that as I don't want to acknowledge my blackness or that I'm, I, am, um, I am merely a, a self-hating uh, black person. What I'm actually trying to get at is an idea that um, that race is a is a belief system, and I'm aware of it as a belief system, but I I don't internalize it to the point where I think it has any influence over um, 
uh, over who and what I think I am, or, or what I who or what my possibilities in life are. I don't think it is defining in in that sense. Um, yeah, and so this is an argument that I'm I'm making. It is an argument on paper. Uh, I've gotten into many <laughs> vigorous, you know, robust disputes with people who say, you know, out in the streets, it's a you know, people are being shot, and, and you know, the, the, there are, there's poverty, rampant poverty, and, and, you know, all of these awful social ills. Absolutely, I don't make any pretense towards solving any of that. This is an entirely academic um, argument which exists entirely on paper, and it's the kind of work that I have always done as a poet and that is to think about um, the ways we construct ideas and how those ideas eventually grow into the kinds of things that impact people's lives on the streets. Mm. That's uh, maybe just a minute left. Uh, that's interesting. Maybe a place to leave it. What is the role of a poet? I guess it's mm. can be defined by oh, the poet himself. Yeah. But, uh, no, that's that's that, that easy old question, yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I have, I have no idea what the what the role of the uh, of the poet is, um, but I can tell you what the what responsibility I have claimed for myself, and I think that's probably um, the best place to approach it from, and that is to challenge um, the ways that we think about the world that have become so routine that we forget that these are ideas, right? So the, the, the way we think about, I don't know, I'm looking at, um, I'm looking at my, my cat right now, and the, the way we think about our, our pets as, as people, you know, what does that say about the, the environment? What does that say about our relationship to one another? What does that say about our relationship to nature? You know, and how these, these ideas operate and i think there's one one of the things that poetry is uniquely capable of doing is finding ways through language to get behind some of the ideas and the um the stagnant ideas in the world to make them to allow us to see the world uh, with fresh eyes and to experience the world new again well, we'll leave it there. Uh, Gregory Pardlow's uh, new book is a fascinating book, Air Traffic, A Memoir of Ambition and Manhood in America. Gregory Pardlow uh, is author of a couple of previous collections of poetry. The collection Digest won the 2015 Pulitzer Prize for uh, Poetry. Gregory Pardlow, uh, thank you so much. Tom, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And I uh, hope you'll join us uh, tomorrow. Uh, I'll be talking with one of the producers of an interesting film. It's called Chasing Coral. Coral reefs around the world are vanishing at an unprecedented rate. A team of divers, photographers, and scientists set out on a thrilling ocean adventure to discover why and reveal the underwater mystery uh, to the world. It's called Chasing Coral. That's the program for tomorrow. Thanks for listening today. The scientific world is supposed to be a place where ideas come together. But instead, it's often a place full of really brilliant people who don't talk to each other. Utah Public Radio's newest show is designed to break down those barriers. So each week, we're going to introduce you to two scientists from vastly different fields of research. And then we're going to lock them in a room together and force them to talk about life. That's Undisciplined, Fridays at 2. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.